Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. We are coming to you from our top secret headquarters at Project Quantum Leap, but you can find us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fate's Wide Wheel. And please do us a favor by hitting the subscribe button on iTunes. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Fate's Wide Wheel. Dennis and I are here... uh, in separate locations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Project Quantum Leap and Stallion's Gate, I think we've decided. Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, and we are here today to talk about Runaway. Yeah. Um, why don't we mention right up front, and I know that this is something that you covered on Facebook, um, this is the last episode before the show went on a two-month hiatus. Yes. Uh, and there was every indication that it would be canceled, and the rest mm-hmm. of the episodes that had already been recorded um, would not be aired. Yeah. Um, now, I don't a- know exactly which episodes were already in the can. I know for a fact that one of them was um, uh, Future Boy. Yes, because... because- that's the episode that was recorded right at, or filmed rather right after Runaway. Um, yeah, uh, because Scott Bakula sprained his ankle. Yeah, dislocated his ankle yeah. filming the climactic scene in this episode, and so they had to write that into the script of Future yeah. Boy. Um, so at least that one was at least that one was in the can. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Eight and a Half Months was also in the can yeah. as well. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to, to, to delve deeper into that. Uh, but yeah, in, in, in a dark parallel universe, this, <laughs> this was the last televised episode of Quantum Leap. What a dark, dark universe that would be. That, uh, I mean, this was a good episode. I'll start off it, saying that. It, I it completely would, agree. It I would, think the first 35 minutes are great. Yeah, yeah you were saying that <laughs> off my before we started. Yeah, it, um... Uh, it would not have been a, a satisfying end of the series, but yeah, because I, I remember, um, yeah, it went off the air after this episode, and I didn't even get to see this episode when it originally aired because there was a thunderstorm that night that knocked the power out, so I wasn't able to record it, uh, and I just kept like waiting for the next episode to come on, and then I remember like finally seeing like there was uh, there was even a like. A small little blurb in TV Guide, like where the listing should have been in that week's uh, listings, that actually said like this series is on hiatus. Yeah, uh, and I remember um, uh, venting, uh, uh, kind of consoling each other, me and Mrs. Pringle, my seventh, my seventh grade yes. English teacher, uh, who looks very much like uh, I can't remember the character's name now, but the. But the older woman in the Halloween episode that gets bitten by the rattlesnake, right? Or, or right. Not, not, not the rattlesnake, but the black mamba. Uh, they look very similar to each other. I remember us consoling each other over the fact that that Quantum Leap had had seemingly been been canceled. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this is. Uh, I'll say to front. Yeah, this is a good episode. Like you said, the the last part of the episode it kind of starts to fall apart. Um, yeah, I, I I think that. Um Oh, two things I want to mention. One, I I think at the time uh, I have no distinct memories, so I'm just going with the story that I was completely oblivious to the potential for the show to be canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember seeing this episode, um, uh, you know, like when it aired um, vaguely. It's you know, it's a little foggy to be honest with you, um, but I, I am I suspect that the hiatus uh, ended up 
causing me to not watch maybe the first couple of episodes when it came back as it as they aired originally, um, because I know that was very like as a kid, obviously, like when you get to, turned on to a television show and you get into the schedule and the rhythm of the schedule for it, when that disappears, you know, it's very hard to kind of go back to it. Um, and things just get lost along the way. I can remember, I loved the, the TV show, the flash, um, the, the original flash show. And, uh, when it got canceled, I was completely oblivious to that fact and just expected it to be on the next week. And when it wasn't, I thought it'll be on the next week and it wasn't. And finally, you know, just as it's like out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. Um, so I, I suspect that that might've similarly happened with this. Um, but I know for a fact that I picked it back up because I remember watching, um, a couple of the episodes later on as, as they aired in particular shock theater. I can remember vividly watching shock theater live. Um, but it's possible that the, that the latter half of the third season, I missed a few in there. Sure. Um, as for the episode itself, kind of like you were saying, I, I mean, I think those, the first like 35 minutes or so are great. Um, I, I think it, it falls apart at the end. I, I, one of the things I was mentioning to you before we started recording is that I think part of that is a 2018 context. I think if you put it in a 1991 context, especially of episodic television, that it it's definitely not a failure by any stretch. I think the criticisms that we're going to levy against it are probably still legitimate in, in, in either context. But I do think that in that 1991 episodic television context for, for storytelling purposes, you can't fault it too much for the storytelling. Um, but I think that, yeah, the, 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 like I said, the, the criticisms that I think we will be levying towards it later are, are legit. Well, a valid idea. And, and I will plug in uh, a couple things here. Uh, one is I watched this episode this morning with my wife, Betsy, and she had some thoughts about this. Um, and, and we were talking about this before we hit record. It's kind of a failure on our part with you know busy lives and, and, and you just having a baby and everything. Uh, we didn't get a woman to guest on this episode as we probably should have. Um, sure. But she did have some thoughts on it. So what we're going to do kind of unique is... Uh, Separately later on, because Betsy's not available right now because she's out taking a nap right now, and uh, Harrison is taking a nap, and she's kind of uh, uh, watching over him right now. But later on, probably after we put him to bed tonight, like we'll sit down, we'll record a little segment of me talking to her uh, about how she feels about the episode, and then we'll drop that in later on at the end of the episode. Uh, and one other thing I'll say, and I mentioned this last week as we were wrapping up talking about A Little Miracle, this episode also exists in a weird headspace for me because I didn't see this episode when it originally aired. I don't think I saw this episode until like the USA Network reruns. Mm -hmm. So uh, even uh, 20 some odd years later, like this episode weird lives in a weird lost episode headspace in my head. Sure. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's weird because, you know, uh, a, a, an episode, or rather three episodes that are like that for me are trilogy. I have no recollection whatsoever of catching those first run. In fact, I'm almost convinced that I did, that there's no way that I did, uh, and that the first time I saw them was on USA. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm almost positive that the last episode I've only I've literally only seen once which is probably the only Quantum Leap episode that I've only seen once, and once? oh great <laughs> um, so yeah I totally get that um, ah, it's you know it's, it's interesting I, I think looking back on something that's nearly 30 years old like that and the way that television worked then compared to the way that it does now 
Uh, and, and, you know, thinking about the way that if this had been on even 30 years prior to that, the idea of syndication or reruns, you know, would have been even more for, and at least in the immediate future. It's like if you watched I Dream of Jeannie when it aired, that was probably the last time you were going to get to see most of those episodes for at least a decade, if not more. Sure. Um, when, you know, when they finally started airing like in syndication packages around the country and that sort of thing. Whereas with Quantum Leap, I mean, the syndication and the USA Network stuff started almost immediately after it went off the air. Um, so, Or the year before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you really, I mean, there was, there was, even though Quantum Leap began airing in 1989 and went off the air uh, in 1994, the truth of the matter is, is that you had, you had Quantum Leap airing with regularity all the way up until probably about 2002, 2003, sure, if not yeah. even later, because of USA and Sci Fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, again, if you look back even a generation before Quantum Leap was on the air, that would not have been something that happened for a lot of TV shows. Um, I mean, Star Trek was probably the first big example of a television program being able to not only sustain itself, but, you know, almost expose itself to an entirely new audience because of syndication. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it was because of the syndication that what is what got interest in it to like bring it back. Yeah. As a movie series. And it's kind of crazy because it almost sounds like something that would be apocryphal, but there's enough evidence that it's not, is that it had to do with the fact that it aired in syndication at a specific time, at like, you know, four or five o'clock time, and college kids were watching it. So it's mm-hmm. like they were they were getting out of classes, they were going back to their dorms, and they were watching Star Trek. And, and they were the ones that kind of helped to Bowie those first, like, um, uh, conventions that were happening in the, in the early and mid-70s and then led to the first film being produced. And, you know, really, if it wasn't for that, it, it, Star Trek would probably just be a, a footnote in, in the history. Of would just the, be up and you and you may know this being a, a Star Trek fan um, that originally, like they weren't going to go into a movies, like they were going to relaunch, they were going to revive the series. Phase two, phase two, and a lot of the episodes of Next Generation from season one are actually reworked scripts. Yep, what was originally going to be phase two? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, it's it's to the point where um, Riker's character, his first name Will, is the same as as Decker, which is the the name of the, uh, the first that's, officer. That's interesting. The motion picture Riker Decker. It's you know it's very similar. And yeah, a lot of there are a lot of parallels um, between the two. And I believe in Phase Two there was even a notion uh, at first to have a Klingon in Starfleet and, and they decided to go against that. And, and even when they got to next generation, they were still sort of iffy on whether or not they were going to do it. Mm-hmm. And of course it gave birth to Mr. Worf. Um, one final digression before we, before we launch into <laughs> our usual here. Uh, there was a recent poll on star Trek.com and it was to identify the most intimidating captain, um, in, in the, in the annals of captains in star Trek canon. Um, Dennis, if you had to guess, who do you think would be at the top of that list? The most intimidating captain. Yeah. Uh, I would go with Picard. Okay. Picard came in second at, okay. at a pretty solid second. I think it was 20, 25% of the sure. vote. Uh, with 37% of the vote, however, and, and, and when, I, when I looked at it, I was like, well, this is who I would pick, uh, was Cisco. Um, okay. Yeah, which I totally get. The reason I bring the poll up, however, though, which I find so wonderfully endearing in so many ways, can you guess who came in last? 
I want to go the sexist way and say Janeway. No, actually, Janeway, I believe, came in third. Oh, okay. Yeah, All right. Janeway was pretty high up there. Uh, no, who came in last was none other than Jonathan Archer, as portrayed by Scott Bakula. <sighs> <laughs> I think that just speaks to the fact of what a nice guy Scott Bakula is. Exactly. That's, exa- that's exactly why I brought it, it up. Because it, I know on Twitter the other day we were talking with a couple of people, and there was there was some conversation about basically how wonderfully beautiful of a human being Scott Bakula is. Well, it was the article you know. off, off Sci-Fi that I shared uh, a couple days ago, like 13 Reasons Why Scott Bakula is Our Favorite Unproblematic Silver Fox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite... It was quite grand. Uh, I, I, I thought, um, like I said, some of the interactions we had were, were quite nice. Um, speaking of interactions, quick shout-out. Uh, we wanted to shout-out, obviously, to our friend Rosen, who keeps uh, uh, you know commenting um, on a lot of the episode stuff that we're putting up, or that, well, that you're putting up. Dennis is the one that really masterminds our social media. I throw stuff out there once in a blue moon. Um, and uh, so we always appreciate her comments. And then uh, Diana Green, we've had a lovely conversation going on with her um, uh, via, you know, like the private messages and stuff like that. I know she's liked and commented on a couple of posts as well. Um, and, and just a really great conversation, honestly. So thank you sure. so yeah. much. She's, Diana. uh, she's introducing her girlfriend to, to quantum leap for the first time. So she's kind of like keeping us posted on, yeah. on that, on that journey. And I think she's got a great perspective, uh, as well. That is, that is, um, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, enlightening to us, which is which is really cool. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So thank you so much for that, and we look forward to continuing that that conversation. And and I think, you know, as we have often stated in early episodes, but have not done as much recently, that as soon as schedules start to get a little bit more ironed out, we would love to be able to you know open the door to having guests uh, on. And now that we kind of have gotten a bit more knowledge on how to do that remotely. Um, you know, (laughs) we, we would love to open that up to just pretty much anyone anywhere in the world. Not, not just anyone who's in Chicago who wants to come into my basement and, uh, and chat with us. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so so let's dive in here. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So we've got, uh, runaway, which, uh, originally aired on January the 4th, 1991. It was written by Paul Brown, not a name that is at all foreign to us, uh, directed by Michael Cattleman, which is actually a new name, I believe. Um, our leap date is July the 4th, 1964. And Sam has leapt into Butchie Rickett and we're in Carbon County, Wyoming. Yeah. Um, yes. What's TV Guide tell us? TV Guide description. I'm sorry, I got, I got distracted by the location, but I'll come back to that here in a second. But anyway, TV sure. Guide. As a teenager in 1964, traveling cross-country with his parents and big sister, Sam, Scott Bakula, must prevent his mom, Sandy Faison, from turning her idea of the feminine mystique into a fatal mistake by abandoning the family. All right, look, let's just let's just... Let's just savage this real quick because I don't know if it was intentional or not. I don't know if maybe I'm just reading a little bit into it. But the whole turning her idea of the feminine mystique into a fatal mistake, like, I can't help but think that whoever wrote that was a little judgy. I'm and maybe throw, even a little bit misogynistic. I'm going to throw it out there that a man wrote that TV guy description. Yeah. I'm just going to say that. Right. All right, cool. I'm just going to say that. We're on the same page here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just to touch base on, uh, I know at the start of the episode, are they leaving Wyoming and going into Colorado? Yes, they are, actually. Yes, because we yes. have that. Yes. 
Goodbye, Wyoming. Hello, Colorado. Hello, dad jokes. Yeah. The way that it's done is clear, especially from the sister. It's very clear that this is something that they have done every single time. Time. Yep. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, so so Sam leaps in, immediately starts getting tormented by big sister in the back seat. A little thing breaks out. And like he ends up, is it a Coke or is it shake? Uh, one of those it's a things. It's a milkshake. He ends up spilling all over his lap, and so we get the the old boy of the episode. Yeah. And so Sam is clearly a a tortured little brother. Yeah, thirteen years old. Yeah. You know, I was never the little brother, but. Let me just say that when you're that close in age with a sibling, because my sister and I are 13 months apart. Like, yeah. yeah. I will say I, I was physically tortured by one of my older siblings, and we had a moment that was very similar to the last scene in this episode. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't a well involved, uh, but, but there, was a, uh, there was a moment very similar that I'll, I'll tell the story when we get to the end of the episode. But yeah, it's something I completely forgot about until that scene, watching it earlier today. I was like, oh, yeah. I remember the last physical fight me and that sibling had. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But anyway, so yeah, Sam is a 13-year-old kid. Butchie Rickett. Uh, What a a fun name. Yeah, I'm sure Butchie loved it. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. And and we're on a a cross-country trip. Yeah, in the station wagon, piled in, doing the thing. Uh, you know, Sam even comments a little bit later about how he experienced the same trip, basically. Sure. Um, you know, with his family, uh, which I, I believe he says he was nine. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, um, which would have, of course, made Tom, like, what, like 12, I guess? And, and, and Katie would have been, um, like, what, like? Five, six? She would have been young, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was pretty bold by John and Thelma to, to, that, to pack those Beckett kids in a car and take them cross country. That would have been, yeah. I'm trying to imagine uh, John Beckett as depicted in the Leap Home. I'm trying to imagine him on a cross country trip. Yeah, right? Yeah. Did you I'd ever like do to th- think. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, did you ever do the cross country trip? With your no, family, we as a never. Kid? We we never did a cross country trip. We did, um, you know, we did a few quarter country trips. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and a few like multi state trips, but never, uh, yeah, never, never the big cross country. The closest we ever came, which is not close at all, because it's really only like a five hour drive. But my memories of it happen to be just vivid enough. I think that it that it kind of stands out as far as like family trips. Is that uh, we did we did go to Graceland one year, um, uh, and uh, it was it was it was quite the pilgrimage, especially I think for my dad because he was a huge Elvis fan, still is, and uh, for him I think it was something that he always had wanted to do. Um, so yeah, that but that's I, I, as crazy as it sounds. We took longer trips for sure, but that's that's the one that kind of stands out as far as having that sort of family trip in 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 my head yeah for sure we never did anything like that we were were getting ready uh betsy and harrison and i were getting ready to take our first uh 
long distance trip here in a, here in a, just a couple of weeks, less than a couple of weeks. Uh, Betsy's family is having a huge family reunion down on the western side of Missouri. So, oh, okay. uh, yeah, so we're taking an entire week uh, uh, for the for the thing. Like, it's a, the reunion is only two or three days, but we're going to like take a couple days to get down there because. Harrison doesn't travel well multiple hours in a car in any given day. Sure. So yeah. we're going to take a couple of days to get down there. We're going to take a couple of days to get back. And, and yeah. Uh, but anyway, let's talk about the Ricketts family vacation. Yeah. So one of the first things, I mean, first of all, the family dynamic is, is, is well established right off the bat, which is sure. really nice. Uh, Sherman Howard uh, is the actor that plays uh, the father and um, whose name is, is, is Hank. Um, no, wait. Frank. Yes, whose name is Hank. Uh, and um, was it Hank or Frank? Yeah, he's. Oh God, I'm pretty See, sure he, I, this is what yeah, he's. What uh, no, no, no. You're right. He's Hank. It's Hank. Yeah, yeah. yeah Hank. I, I heard it. Um, it's Frank. Sorry. Yeah. This is what happens when you use multiple devices to try and keep track of all the different websites. I've got like no, my sure. iPad, my computer, my phone, the the Quantum Leap book by Matt Dale. It's oh, yeah. it's crazy over here right now. Anyway. Yeah, so Hank, uh, you know, is pretty well established as being that, that I think uh, what at one time was certainly the prototypical all-American dad, you know, domineering to a point. Um, oh, but, God, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but not uh, at, the, at the time. Again, you know, if we're, if we're contextualizing this, in 1964, it, it, you know, that it would have maybe started to be seen as a negative. Um, but certainly, like, throughout the 50s, this was, this was, this is what dad was supposed to be like. And oh, I think, yeah. in, you know, that there are absolutely plenty of people out there, even today, that still think that that's what dad is supposed to be like. Um, which... Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about as the episode goes on. Yeah, speaking of American Dad, it just occurred to me, like, I, I don't really watch that TV show, mm-hmm. American Dad, but I have seen enough episodes that Hank's voice is almost exactly like the dad's voice on that show. You know, it's funny you mention that, because I don't know if that is one of the shows that he does, but Sherman Howard is quite the prolific voice actor, um, and has done uh, many cartoons, video games, etc. Uh, he's from Chicago, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, a lot of television, a lot of film as well, so it's not just uh, voice acting, but um, I'm trying to see if that's... It doesn't look like that's one of the things that he's been on, surprisingly enough, because there's a lot. I mean, he's got quite the resume on um, IMDb. Sure, yeah. But... Um, yeah, a lot of voice work, a lot of stuff in video games and cartoons throughout the years. Uh, he's, you know, he, he hit the, the, the Star Trek uh, uh, mark as well, as we've had a lot of guests on episodes that have been on Star Trek. Um, yeah, he, he's done, like I said, he's just done a ton of stuff um, and uh, has been around for a number of years. His earliest credit actually uh, goes back to 1975, or no, 73, excuse me. He was on... A, General Hospital, where he originated the role of Gordon Bradford Gray, uh, and he was on there for a year before um, going on to whatever was next. Um, Also, if there's any horror fans out there, um, he is is quite famous uh, in that circle for playing Bub uh, in Day of the Dead. Uh, Okay. Um, So, there you have it. But... um, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys that you've probably seen before. You know, yeah. like you'll recognize the face or you'll recognize his voice. So you've definitely seen or heard him before. Um, Emma Rickett, who plays, or excuse me, Sandy Faison, who plays Emma Rickett, uh, her career is, is a little um, less notable, which is kind of too bad because I thought she was fantastic in this. And all I could say when I was looking at her IMDb, which ends at around 1997, is I certainly hope she hasn't stopped acting because I thought she was wonderful in this episode. She was. Yeah. I realized at one point, like halfway through the episode, like watching it, like, um, I feel like she like she's one of the like, like the, the better grounded, like fleshed out down to earth, uh, characters. Yeah. That, that, uh, yeah, that, that we've, that we've seen on the show. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and especially like uh, a lot of times, like the, the the woman lead in an episode ends up being a romantic foil for Sam. But in this one, obviously for obvious reasons, uh, <laughs> yeah, that is that is not the case. But like her and uh, and Scott Bakula get to have some really great moments and a couple of really great scenes. Yeah, in spite, you know, I, I think not in spite of, maybe even because of. Um, they have a really beautiful relationship throughout the course of this episode, mm-hmm. and and it and it it's funny because I can remember watching it at the time, and even though Sam is is you know being Sam a lot of times throughout the course of this episode, as opposed to kind of pretending to be Butchie, um, it I don't know there was something about it that just sort of reminded me and 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 and. Um, it just, it, you know, made me think of my relationship with my mom uh, a couple of times, actually, uh, and that that ability to to kind of talk uh, about things that maybe a normal thirteen year old wouldn't talk to his mother about, you know, or in a way, um, which I really liked. And I, again, I just thought that they ended up having a very, you know, a, a beautiful relationship. Um, Amy Foster is the actor who plays Alexandra Rickett. Uh, her career, again, kind of uh, as far as IMDb goes, uh, stops at around 1995. But uh, prior to that, I mean, she did a lot of stuff um, and it and had been on um, quite a few uh, television shows as a, as a child actor. It looked like she started in, in as early as 1983 in the TV show Webster. Um, and... Um, yeah, you know, I thought she did a great job as well. Uh, I, I think that it's clear that, that Paul Brown, the writer, had fun with her name, um, especially when Sam is talking to Al, creates a couple of fun moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. the family. Yeah, what's interesting about that character, I don't know if you, you read this tidbit in Matt's book, is that Holly Field from Kamikaze Kid, uh, I can't remember her character's name from that episode now, but uh, Cam's love interest in that in that episode uh she was told to be to be, basically she was put on hold as a backup yeah. because they were having difficulty casting that role and then at the last minute they ended up casting amy foster in the role that that would have been interesting to see that actor back yeah well and it's not you know it's not anything out of the ordinary because when you think about um Oh, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, they, yeah, they, I mean, they, they reuse one a thing lot about of... Katie Beckett in particular, who was played by the same actor that played the daughter in. Um, why can't I think of it? Another mom? No, mm-hmm. wait. another mother. Yes, yeah, okay. another mother. Yeah, uh, um, you know that, and and the proximity of those episodes too. You know, it's kind of it's fascinating to think that like 
within the span of, you know, less than a year, she was on the show twice. So I don't think it would have been too completely out of the ordinary, but, um, I think yeah, it would, would have been interesting. I think it would have been interesting because in Kamikaze Kid, she was Sam's love interest. Right. Which, through a lens of today, is a little bit creepy because she was 15 years old. Her character was 15 years old in that episode, you know, and Sam is only supposed to be 16 because he's, you know, in the body of a teenager. But there is that weird dynamic. It would have been interesting to see that actor come back playing someone who is essentially the same age, but someone who is being like very, like a very different character, like tormenting her brother. Right. I think that's what would have made it interesting. No, that, that is a, that is a very, very good point actually. Um, and, and I know that she, um, said that she was kind of bummed, uh, that she didn't end up getting the chance oh, to be sure. on the show again, but yeah. that, uh, she was very, you know, she was happy for Amy, uh, for, for whatever it's worth. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, obviously in, in casting television in general, we've talked about it before. I, I mean, you know, you're, you're no matter how many people are out in Hollywood or New York or Chicago for that matter, or anywhere in between trying to make it, um, you end up drawing from actually a fairly limited pool of actors. If you're, if you're in, you know, like that, that time frame of a couple of seasons. Uh, and it's the reason why you and I know more people than we can count on our fingers and toes who have been on the Chicago, you know, shows here sure. in the city because everyone who, you know, who has an agent eventually gets tapped to do it because, you know, they, they run out of people after sure. a while. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, uh, the relationship obviously between Alex and, and Butchie is, is, is set up. Right established. Yeah. I mean, I mean all of the relationships are established history. like pretty, are, are pretty well. I mean, like you said, the entire family dynamic, everyone kind of craps on, on on Butchie Alexander, she's you know smart. Alec picks on her little brother. Hank is the prototypical macho American dad, and um, Emma, the mom, she's um, there, there, there's a great line later on. Like she's everybody else's everything, but she is a non-person. Yeah, which man. I'm, which, which I'm guessing, I'm guessing that's uh, that's a term that comes up a lot in the book, The Feminine Mystique, which we're introduced to in this scene, uh, perhaps. But yeah, she she has lost herself. She's everybody's. She's everybody else's everything, but she's she doesn't get to be her. Yeah, I you know I don't know because unfortunately I've not read it, but I thought that the non-person thing was actually something that Sam brought up. I because it, Emma's, yeah, like struggling, said, Emma's struggling with with to put a label on it, and Sam says non-person because, it, it, which is really beautiful because I think it does such a wonderful job of describing how Sam feels. For sure. Uh, oh, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. But also, yeah. like I, I always kind of interpret that as like he was pulling a term from the book because he knew that that would be a really good shorthand for her since she was reading the book. No, that, I mean that very well could be. Like I said, I've not, I've, I've not read it, um, but uh, we're, we're certainly going to talk a little bit about it in, in the limited context that we might have with it because I think it's worth doing, um, and we, we, we might as well just dive in right now, actually, because it's it gets brought up pretty much right away. Mm-hmm. Um, she's you know she's reading the book. Um, you know, Sam has the line right away about how it, you know it's basically going to lead to women's liberation. Uh, doing a little prognosticating if you will sure uh, and um, it, you know it's it's great because 
the you know the family reacts in such a way that they're sort of surprised that he's you know saying what he's saying and yet at the same time you know you do get the sense that even though they they are into these rigid roles as far as who who they have to be based on that family hierarchy mm-hmm. that there is uh a, a sense of communication between the family and understanding between the family. So even though Alexandra picks on Butchie and, and, and Hank rules with a bit of an iron fist and Emma is the dutiful housewife, it doesn't seem like they're at all shut off from one another. Oh, no. Um, you know, there's definitely a very nice, you know, communal vibe about the family. But anyway, uh, yeah, yeah the feminine <laughs> mystique. If we had this family vacation in 2018, they would just all be riding in silence yeah, everybody on their own phone, <laughs> lost Pretty in their much. own world. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, it's true. It's oh man. It, yeah, it, there was a wave of nostalgia. I think that hit me in spite of not necessarily of a, a not growing up in that time period and b never having really done that specific trip. You know that 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 idea of everybody piling in the car. Um, you know, basically, if you were going anywhere that you were going to be in the car for longer than an hour, let's say, you know, that was. It was there was a thing. It was a bit of a production. You know, you had to have these things, and uh, you know, we were going to stop, and you were maybe going to get lunch. You can do this. So yeah, it did bring about a bit of a wave of nostalgia. Um, so let's talk so about the feminine mystique. Is yeah. a book that was written by Betty Friedan, and it was published in February of 1963. Um, the the book had actually gotten its. Um, uh, Beginnings as early as 1957, um, because Betty Friedan did a survey of her former Smith College classmates, and she ended up finding that a lot of them were very unhappy with the lives that they were leading, and so that prompted her research. And she ended up um, conducting a bunch of interviews with suburban housewives, researching psychology, media, advertising, and she had originally intended to publish it as an article, but then it, it grew into a. a um, a book, and I guess that she ran into a lot of resistance. There were a lot of magazines that wouldn't publish the article, um, even though it was published in 1963. It did not become a bestseller until 1964. So okay. uh, I think you know, obviously, having Emma reading this in July of 64, um, you know, has the the fingers on the pulse of what was going on at that time because there were a lot of women reading this book, um, and it it, it, it basically. I, I, if, if we had to sum it up in a nutshell, I think Wikipedia does it does it well enough with a with a pulled quote from. Um, uh, uh, let me get this right um, from the book actually, which is um, that Friedan was challenging the widely shared belief in the 1950s that fulfillment as a woman had only one definition for American women after 1949: the housewife mother. Uh-huh. And uh, I think that you know in 1964. Um, when you give it that historical context, so many other changes were going on throughout the country um, that it, 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 it you know made sense that women were being motivated to break out uh, of those molds as well um, or, or, or you know not even motivated, although I think this did provide motivation for some people that that you know there was a recognition, there was an understanding there was you know it was, it was being vocalized you know and, and I think if we're going to kind of get an, an analog, it's sort of like a lot of, of what we've been hearing with me too. This is not something that's new. it's not something that we're, we're just now talking about it, but we're giving it the recognition where we're having a different conversation about it and I think in the same way that um, you know in the 60s, and women wanting to break out of that happy housewife 
you know Donna Reed mold, you know, is, is because there was there was that recognition and the decision to kind of have a conversation about. Yeah. It. So going to a deeper dive in that, you're talking about you know like that compared to what else was going on at the time. So in this first scene, yes, we also haven't announced that uh, just the day before Lena B. Johnson had signed the Civil Rights Act, leading Hank to throw out the. The line that everybody deserves an equal chance in this country. And then later in the episode, he clarifies, like, yeah, minorities, not women. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's great because Sam is, is proud of him. You know, Sam, Sam, <laughs> yeah. he has that line about way to go, dad. You know, when, yeah, when, when Actually, way to go. Yeah. Goes, way to go, Hank. Yeah. He calls him. Yeah. Way yeah, to go, Hank. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I couldn't help but think, um, and I, Uh, yeah, I don't know if I should say. It. I, I, you know, I'm I'm going to say it because it's the title of the song and and it's and it's the point that I believe I'm trying to make. So I'm just going to say it. I, I, I apologize because it's a word that I loathe and hate to say, but I, I think in in the context, hopefully, it will be understood. John Lennon has a song called "Woman Is the Leader of the World," and I think that um, that that song. Uh, it, it kind of exemplifies that opinion that Hank espouses later in the episode. The idea mm, that, yeah. you know, minorities, everybody else, but not women. Um, and, and that I think that, you know, the, the, the point that Lennon was trying to make and, and that he and Yoko Ono both were trying to make with, with this song is that um, no matter where you went in the world, women were, were put down um, and, and put in a class below um, you know, men basically, sure. regardless of, of, of the, the color of their skin, um, or, you know, their religious backgrounds. And, 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 and we still see that today in, in many parts of the world. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Cause again, I, I, and we're kind of going all out of order, but the first 35 minutes of the episode does a really wonderful job of handling the subject and sure. in the context of 1964. And, and so much so that the episode for me, as I was watching it reminded me a lot of thou shalt not to the point where I was like, man, this, this episode has the potential to be that sort of classic domestic drama in the same way that thou shalt not was. And, uh, and then just goes off the rails at the end. Quite yeah, frankly. it does. Yeah. And to touch back on, you know, to, you know, to talk about, uh, you know, to bring, you know the idea of race back into the feminist mystique. I was googling the feminist mystique just now because I wanted to see if the, the term non-person was prominent in that book, and I didn't find that. But one of the first things I uh, that came up was an article from the Atlantic, basically going back and um, and revisiting the feminist mystique through the lens of today, and you know it points out how uh, by today's lens the book is a bit racist. Not bit, like very quite racist and, and classist because it really only looks at the perspective of middle to upper class white women. And it yeah. doesn't really explore the realities of women of color or poor women, poor women of color. It, it doesn't have the intersectionality of, of all of those women. It just really focuses on the plight of middle to upper class white women. Yeah, you know, and, and I think that as much as I, I, I love and, and try to promote, um, you know, for myself, uh, a, a wider worldview of, 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 of equality and not really worrying about, um, you know, we, we need to be working together so that everybody's on the same page. Um, that said, it's impossible not to 
notice when you take the time to look at it, the disparities between um, opportunities that are afforded to, you know, white women compared to black women or, you know, going even further into that. We've even mentioned this before on the podcast about like specifically black trans women are so incredibly marginalized and threatened by you know society as a whole but certainly obviously you know more vocal and violent minority of the of the group if you will mm-hmm. um that that have pushed so many uh, of these women to um you know to suicide or or they've been murdered or or you know i mean there 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 really is a, a, a enough of a problem that it's worth noticing and, and talking about and so i think that it's one thing to to put the book the feminine mystique in the larger context of what feminism meant for these women in 1964. But I think it is important to, to recognize, you know, what that Atlantic article says, what other articles, you know, we know have been out there. Um, I, I, you know, even like New York times talking about these issues. So, um, you know, while on one hand, it's great to kind of pump your fist and say, yeah, feminine mystique, you know, get them out of the housewife mother role. It's another to, to be able to recognize and say that, you know, that, that again, there's still a lot of work, to do to do yeah uh one other like logistical note why i found interesting it, it looks like um that may have been original an original copy or close to an original hard uh cover copy of the feminine mystique yeah but it the book also looked like it was about 30 years old <laughs> right, <You're> right. <laughs> instead of instead of emma having just bought it yeah, I agree. I completely agree. I thought the same thing, especially in the scene where Hank like takes it from her and throws it into the woods. Sure. You get a closer view of it, and it does. You're right. It looks like, yeah, that is one dog-eared, faded copy the, um, for being probably you, more, no more than a year old. You, you know? know, but for like early 90s standard definition television, that was perfectly fine. But the higher definition of the Blu-ray, that points out. You know, we're kind of, right. yeah, we, we are jumping all over the place in this episode right here. But I feel like it's appropriate because like I realized like looking at my notes that I took, I didn't take a a lot of specific notes about the scene interactions. I just took a lot of like broader notes, like overall about the characters and the attitudes about yeah. these characters. Cause like one of the things like, you know, Betsy and I were watching it together. Um, and like I said, we'll drop in Betsy's thoughts later in the episode, but you know, like she just kept pointing out like at every turn they go out of their way to remind you what a horrible person Hank is. <laughs> I mean, I mean, not like like a horrible in an evil way, but just like a, a very hard to dif- a very difficult person like to live with and love and like. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just very hard to be on his side at all in the episode because at at every turn, like you know, he he takes an opportunity to put Emma down or try to quote toughen. Uh, Butchie up or when Billy comes into the episode later on you know how he constantly you know tries to undercut him and it's clearly coming out of place of his own insecurity yeah without a doubt and I think that one of the one of the things that the episode does very well uh, again in those opening moments is that they give you just enough to make him endearing and then kind of assault you with all the reasons why he's not a very good person. Sure. Um, which I, I really appreciate because I we've talked about it before. There are definitely episodes where characters come across as 
this is a horrible person. Mm-hmm. You know, this is someone that I don't like and they are the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it's, it's always more interesting to find someone appealing in some way or, or empathetic in some way or endearing in some way before undercutting it with why they happen to be not so great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, 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 that the episode does that fairly well. Cause there are even some times later on where, and, and maybe it's because, you know, there's that inescapable fact that in some ways Hank does kind of remind me of, of my dad or, or, or my, or my grandpa or, you know, a little bit, mm-hmm. not, you know, not, not too much, but, but there are those little echoes here and there where it's hard to, to, to separate the fact that like, Oh, right. You know, that was like that, that was my grandfather's generation, basically, you know, a little bit younger. I mean, my grandfather was born in 1920. You got to figure that more than likely Hank is born in probably like 1930. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a little separation there, but yeah, I, I, I think that, um, th- there are enough reminders though of, of why he's not so great. And, and I, again, you know, contextualizing the episode in 1964, if a father is to call his son a sissy for not being able to catch a baseball, nobody's really going to bat an eye in 1991, probably still not really going to bat an eye. But in 2018, with the benefit of hindsight and history and, and the context of even that word, we know what he's saying. You know, he's, he's, he's mm-hmm. equating his son's inability to catch the, the ball with being gay, which is being seen as being less than, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and that kind of mentality, unfortunately, is without a doubt a constant when it comes to the, you know, the patriarchy, basically. And I don't mean that in terms of the broad, you know, whitewash term that gets thrown around so much that it's become a cliche and I'm almost sickened of hearing it. I mean it in the legitimate idea that there is a, there is this masculine overview of the way that the world is supposed to exist. And it begins with the father, you know, patron, you know, and and I think that this, you know, has been reinforced so much, um, that in that brief moment, it tells you so much about where Hank is coming from mm-hmm. and how he sees his son and how he's afraid of what his son might be if he can't catch a baseball. Mm-hmm. And I think tapped into that is a, is a lot of uh, your own insecurities because if your son is a certain thing, then that reflects upon you. Yeah. And like throughout the episode, like... Hank isn't a pleasant person a lot, but you can like, you can just tell how insecure he is. Like, especially like around Billy when he's introduced, like, especially like the one line, it, it, it's not the line itself. It's how he delivers the line. It's, you know, like when, when they meet up with Billy later on and they're comparing notes of like what, what Billy did versus him. And like Billy went on to got his degrees. And I think like Billy is, is, is teaching now, uh, if I recall. And then like yeah. Hank, like what do you do? Yeah. College wasn't my thing. Then I started delivering poultry. And it's just the way he says that line. It's like, like, it's this thing of like, this is not where his life ended up and he's not happy about it. But you like the way, like he's trying to spin it like, yeah, I'm totally satisfied delivering poultry. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, the insecurities of the character are, uh, illuminated very well throughout the course of the episode at different moments. I think that the probably the best moment is the is the confrontation. That might be too strong of a word to use for because it, it is a little 
you know, not, not too confrontational. Um, but the scene between Sam and Hank when they're jogging in the morning and, um, uh, you know, Sam does the math to figure out that mm-hmm. Emma was pregnant with Alex before they got married and before she was to go off to college. And that's what prevented her from going off to college and, you know, so on and so forth. And, um, the, you know, the, the, the idea that he was scared to let her go to college, uh, brings up all sorts of notions of, you know, did he get her pregnant on purpose? Like, was that what he was hoping would happen? Um, and, you know, in the conversation today, when we talk about sexual assault and rape, like that has been one of those things that I feel like has kind of flown under the radar. Uh, there are articles out there where it certainly gets addressed, but the idea that, you know, if you, if it, 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 basically the idea that if you're having sex with someone with the intention of getting them pregnant, when they're not on board with that, like that is a kind of rape. And, yeah. and, and, and brings up all sorts of just interesting questions about the dynamic of their relationship early on mm-hmm. and how seriously Emma maybe took the relationship. Um, you know, the, the type of love, especially, you know, at the end of the episode when Hank is talking about how, you know, how much he loves her after they've saved her from the side of the cliff and all that, it's just sort of like, uh, that yeah. is not that is not healthy love. That is not, not for you, yeah. Hank. Not for Emma. Emma like, yeah. That is not healthy. That is not healthy. I think we'd like let's pause and back up because I like we're going to go all over the place with this episode. For our listeners who have not watched this episode in quite a bit, <laughs> yes. let's yes. Like, like like let's hit like like the broad points of what the plot of the episode sure. is. So uh, they get to was like. Uh, Wild Willie's West Show, Wild Willie's Western Park, or something like that. Um, yeah, and Sam gets thrown in the chimp cage. Yes, and this is one of the creative things. Uh, I, I feel like this has happened like once or twice before, like through an episode. I like when we get like the mirror image quote, like the reflection by way of showing you a picture of the person Sam has leaped into. Uh, which if we get, this like, is a little bit more creative because th- I don't think this has ever been done like this before. Okay, maybe yeah, I don't think maybe not, but yeah, he gets thrown in the cage. Like we get a picture taken, and then we get shown like the picture that was just taken of him. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, so we get to see like uh, yeah, he's you know he's he is a thirteen year old kid. And he's by far like the youngest that he's ever leaped into. Um, yeah, but in this scene, shortly after the the monkey cage, Al shows up. And the, the whole point that Sam is there is that uh, that night on July 4th, Emma is – she's going to disappear. She's never going to be heard from by the family again. And so Al postulates that she is going to run off and leave the family and she is going to run off with Billy, who is a former uh, high school classmate of – Emma's uh, it kind, of, kind of obvious that they were a little bit sweet on each other during high school. Uh, Billy is there with his daughter, whose name I did not get, uh, Beth. Um, and uh, it, it's very heavily implied that Emma is going to run off with Billy and abandon yes. the family. And we, and we learned that Billy's wife. Has died, has died yes. about a year or so ago, mm-hmm. um, and that he and his daughter are on this trip because they're trying to make the decision as to whether or not Billy's going to go 
um, all these choices. Yes, at yeah. like the East Coast because they currently they're living in San Francisco, yeah, uh, near Berkeley. Because I guess he's teaching at Berkeley. Yeah. Um, the you know we also get some information about how he went to Northwestern, which is where originally Emma was going to go as well, but mm. she stayed behind in Florida, got married, had kids. Um, we also get um, this you know kind of cutesy and I'm so glad that they decided not to go any further with it but this cutesy sort of romantic interplay between Beth and Sam slash Butchie mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's great because Sam is, is appropriately awkward uh, which which just causes the scene to be almost even more endearing and I can you know I can remember like as I'm watching it this time around because again I had sort of foggy memories of it I was just sort of like uh, I hope there's really no follow-up in this. Like, there was always a part of me that was like, do they, like, kiss at the end of the episode? Is there any kind of, you know, like, what's going to happen between them? They don't. Sure. Um, I mean, the thing is, like, watching the scene, like, I didn't even really get, like, uh, like any, like, cutesy, like, romantic interest that Beth had towards Butchie. I just really kind of saw it as more as a, hey, the adults are talking, we're kids, you know, like, you know, Let's find some common ground here and, and, and you know, because basically to have like another person your age to talk to as opposed to the adults, uh, I didn't see maybe the the romantic thing uh, there. Yeah, um, I totally did. Because okay. there's that point where Beth is like, I'm going into high school next year. You know, what grade are you in? And, and it just it went beyond ever so slightly. It went beyond the whole just sort of like, hey, you're a kid. I'm a kid. What's up? It, it, it felt a little bit more sort of... More of a flirty... Yeah, ever so slightly flirtatious. But speaking of flirtatious, then um, Emma and Billy uh, end up giving us a little bit of Shakespeare here. Oh, God, um, yeah. Reciting some Romeo and Juliet. Quite well, I might add, actually. Do, yeah. <laughs> well, I love, like, during this interplay, like, they, they cut to a close-up of Beth shooting Sam a look like... What? Yeah. what is happening? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is quite nice. And then, of course, Hank comes over. We get the scene that you had mentioned earlier about, like, you know, the two of them talking. And at first, it, it's fairly innocuous. Like Hank is very much like Billy. You know, it's like, hey, how are you? You know. Yeah. Um, but then there gets to be a little bit of territorial oh, quality sure. to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also, and then Billy throws out, "Hey, if you, you know, if you're if you're coming through San Francisco on your trip, uh, hey, you know, look me up, stop by, and gives Emma her card." Yeah. Um, and that card comes into play when they get back in the car because um, there's conversation about you know them stopping there or whatever. Al has, meanwhile, from the get go, been fairly invested in Sam making sure that Emma does not run off. Sure. And um, it's always nice when we get a little bit of that personal investment from Al. And certainly, you know, with episodes like MIA and Jimmy, it gets pushed even further. Um, but in this episode, it's it's sort of like it's just enough to add a little flavor and a little color. And, of course, Dean Stockwell is perfect throughout the episode doesn't get a ton to do in this episode but in the few scenes that he's in i mean he's just he's just wonderful um and uh it's always so it's always nice to see you know that that kind of personal investment from al beyond sam Mm -hmm. um and of course it all stems from the idea that you know because his father wasn't around very much that that's why his mom ran off and that that you know that that the effect that it had obviously on their dad was tough, but it was more the effect that it had on him and his sister, mm-hmm. um, you know, in their lives growing up. And so it, it's really kind of nice in a way that Al is seeing this from a point of view as in like, it, it, I, I'm overstating this, but it's almost like, I don't care about Hank. 
I care about Butchie and Alexandra. You know, and, yeah. and I thought that that was really nice. And he prompts Sam, of course, to take the card from Emma and then throw it out the window and then has the beautiful line uh, of, OK, now don't ever litter again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's Dean Stockwell's environmentalism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, Emma is very upset about this and you know, wants to turn the car around to go find the card. Hank's like, we'll never find the card. Um and this is when we, you know, they get into... They run into Billy again, yeah. Because they, they run past Billy, whose car is stalled. Um, and Emma is basically like, let me out of the car. I want, I want out of the car. And Hank does. And as she runs off, Hank lights up a cigarette. And Sam is like, Dad, you know, should we go after her? And as Hank lights up the cigarette, he's like, she'll come back. She always comes back. And it's just uh, sort of like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Let, let's talk about the smoking, by the way, too, because like any time, like they're, they they never mention it, but any time they're driving, Hank has a cigarette between his fingers, and you know that smoke is just blowing back. Yeah. In Sam's face, I've oh, I, I've had that experience before. Me too. And it's uh yeah. To the to the point where honestly, like I got to be honest, growing up, there was almost something. I liked about it, mm-hmm. you know, like especially that first, like, as I say this and, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, Dennis, did you, did you ever smoke? Uh, only for a show for a few okay. weeks. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I was a smoker for a little while actually. And, um, that, 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 that scent after the cigarette first gets lit mm-hmm. and, and like, especially being in a car as, as when I was younger and kind of that, that smell, um, I don't know. There was something about that that I like. Now I, I loathe, I loathe it in all forms. I don't care if it's the first drag or the last drag or any in between. I can't stand the smell. I mean, I you know, living in a city like Chicago, you encounter it on the street often, and I sure. I almost take personal offense. Like I just want to. I just I, I like. It's like oh, I hate that you're smoking. You know. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hank is always is, has has got a cigarette quite a lot in this episode. Yeah, um, but anyway, so yeah, it's worth noting. Yeah, but uh, they they keep running into Billy throughout the episode. Yeah. Like they run in the at the at the Wild West, whatever it's called, and then his car is broken down on the side of the road. It is important to note that one of the more important things plot wise that happens is uh, while Billy is is very smart in a lot of ways, he's not very good with his hands doesn't know anything about repairing cars. And so that's something that Hank is able to do that Billy is admittedly very clueless about. Yeah, and it's interesting. Two things to note is that there is a kind of a parallel, whether intentional or not, uh, of the the coincidental meetings between the family and Billy like there is with uh, Beth and... um, and um, Dirk. the guy who I hate so much, yeah, Dirk. I, I knew yeah. it was Dirk. I was I was playing around. Yeah, but anyway, uh, yeah, Beth and Dirk in MIA, and um, you know, they're even the way that Al um, obviously very, very different stakes, but even the way that Al notes it, mm-hmm. about, oh, I keep running into him, you know, because they run into him again at the campground um, or cabins, whatever they are, and. Sure. Um, yeah, and of course Hank makes fun of him. Like, oh, you know, what kind of guy goes on a uh, cross country trip and doesn't even bring a screwdriver? You know, sure, uh, yeah. Uh, and and there is this increasing tension um, between Emma and Hank 
Uh, and it starts before Billy comes into the picture. So I think that one of the things that the episode gets right to jump ahead is the fact that any sort of tension between Billy and Emma that might be romantic at all, there's, I don't think there's any... Emma is not seeing Billy as an alternative to Hank in the present. Emma is seeing Billy as an alternative to Hank in her past and, and, and the choices that she could have made, and not even romantically. It's not even that if I would have done things differently, Billy and I would be together. It's if I would have done things differently, my life would be different. And that's one of the things that the episode, I feel like, gets so right when it comes to Emma and her struggle for her identity and wanting to grow beyond the, the, the image, you know, especially that Hank has of her as housewife and mother. Uh, and she wants to go back to college. She's talking about these things with, you know, with Hank. And Hank, of course, is very dismissive of it. Um, and I think this is just another way that his insecurities come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that it's fairly easy to see that Emma's the smarter of the two of them, um, if you will, you know, for whatever that's worth. Uh, and so, of course, he's going to be threatened by her desire to go back to school. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great way to put it. Is that she doesn't see Billy as an alternative now, but an, as an alternative to her past. Yeah, uh, but even then, like I, I don't. Yeah, like even then, like they they don't like beat you over the head with with that. Um, you know, there's there's only one point where uh, there's uh, there's one scene where. In an argument with Hank, she does kind of compare the two. And Hank was like, well, you know, why don't you go off and be with him? And she makes some line. I can't remember exactly what it says. Like, well, if there was room in his car, maybe I will. Right. If there was room in his car, I would. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's very interesting because we know that after they get to um, Devil's Backbone or the, you know, the camp, Camp, uh, camp Chipmunk. Which, by the way, this is this is something that I noted. So as the, there's a shot, like as they pull into Cap, Camp Chipmunk, like there's like the, the, the mechanical chipmunk, you know, set. Yeah. But there's also a sign over the entranceway that says, Happy Fourth of July. And then underneath that, it actually, it's entirely spelled out. It says July 4th, 1964. <laughs> That's a very on the nose specific sign. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's also interesting because there's a piece of stock footage that gets used just a little bit later after yeah, they in. Yeah. That feels very jarring because there's no other stock footage in the episode that I could tell. No. It seems like it's very much location based. And so all of a sudden there's this weird piece of stock footage that's sort of jammed in as Hank and Emma are having the conversation, which devolves into the fight. And this is where. Hank becomes so, I mean, it's so identifiable. Um, It's it's something that I think that most people would recognize, which again makes the episode uh, even stronger because he's, not only is he threatened by these desires that Emma is having for breaking out of that mold, but he becomes specifically threatened and, and, and gives a sort of personification and vilification to the book. To the point that he grabs the book and throws it off into the woods. Uh, yeah, and it's just—it's—it's it's not, it's not at all subtle, but it's just a wonderful metaphor for what that type of character would think of feminism in general. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and having you know no no use for it. And it's it's weird because in a way you almost have to question: Is it because he doesn't understand it? Is it because he's threatened by it? Or is it because he really is just a misogynistic prick? I think he's a misogynistic prick in the way that uh, a lot of men are. And like, like be- yeah, I mean, it's it's not uh, it, it, it's, to find the right words. It's not like an intentional evil, like he's intentionally being mean. It's just like this is the way he understands the world. Why? Why don't you know your place, woman? Absolutely, and it's and it's it's that ignorance of. I mean, it, it's the one line, like when he's talking with Sam, like later on. It, it's the you know when 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 Sam throws his words back in his face, like you know, you said that everybody deserves an equal shot in this country, and he very sincerely says, like, well, like yeah, I meant minorities, not women. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is a it is a strange kind of of ignorance that I, I think ends up empowering these kind of ideas. Mm. Um, that 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 sort of structure was okay. Uh, that there was a safety to it and a, an appeal to it and and an idealization of it. And I think that once you start to see outside of that, and there becomes a wider consciousness that if you don't keep up. That if you decide to maintain the ignorance in light of this information and awareness and new conversation that's happening around it, that's when you become intentionally a misogynistic prick, as opposed to being unintentionally misogynistic because you're wrapped up in the trappings of, of your historical context, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what Hank is on the precipice of. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's almost like Hank a month ago was still not a good guy, but because he didn't know any better, you could almost, and I realize this is a very dangerous thing to say. So I, I, I say it, you know, none too lightly, but you could almost excuse his behavior. You know, it's like you could almost understand if his head's in the sand, why he's not carrying an umbrella. You know, okay. <laughs> whereas sure. that's the dumbest thing I've said. But anyway, it's 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 you know you can almost understand it and excuse it in a way. But once that enlightenment starts to creep in on him and he starts fighting so stringently against it, then you have to say you're an asshole. Yes. Yes. And, and I don't. I, Go ahead. I don't feel good about saying that necessarily because I don't want to excuse his behavior in any context. But I think that for, for context, it's, it's like in 1964 when he's acting this way, you have to look at it and you have to be like, I get it. I might not like it, but I get it. In 1991, my hope is that you would look at it and be like, I get it and I don't like it and that's bad. Mm-hmm. In 2018, I, I would hope that you would just shake your head and sigh and, you know, throw your hands up in the air and be like, thank God that was almost 50 years ago Mm -hmm. or was 50 years ago. Yeah. Over 50 years ago. Oh God. Yeah. What day is it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I guess, uh, yeah, one of my issues with this episode, we talk about how it falls apart in the last 15 minutes. Like Hank doesn't learn this lesson naturally. Nope. He has, he doesn't learn it at all. Yeah. He has to learn it. Well, I mean, he he learns it 
after the episode ends. Like, he learns it by way of Al telling us at the end of the episode that he learns it because of what happens to this family after Sam leaps out. But it took her almost dying for him to learn that lesson. Okay, so she runs away, and Hank is convinced that you know he's that she's gone to Billy. There's this confrontation with Billy. Billy's like, I, you know, no, she's not with me. I, you know, I left her uh, uh, back along the way. Al, well, because like, like I wish they would have like shown this conversation in a longer episode where where you know Billy says like like no like she came to me and we agreed that all things considered like we should not see each other anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I catch myself lost in thought thinking like Billy is presented as, as such a good, as, as such a good guy throughout most of this episode. I, I do kind of wonder now as I'm thinking about it, did Billy have ulter- ulterior motives? Like, was he hoping to maybe eventually steal Emma away from Hank and was he just playing like like the the nice guy role like really super nice like there's there's right. th- there's the earlier scene where we don't see it happen but we see Hank and Billy almost having a fight because Hank saw Billy put his hand on Emma's knee and leave yes. it there and Billy presents it as a completely innocent gesture uh it would be interesting to know if like no maybe Billy did have ulterior motives I, you know, I think he probably did, honestly. Um, I think he probably identified in Emma a desire to be more than um, and a, a, a sense that she wasn't happy. Um, you know, I think that he also recognized that there was, you know, this piece of his past that, that led to, you know, all sorts of what ifs and, and, and maybe stills, you know, in his brain. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's a widower. He's, you know, he's, he's getting ready to make this huge change in his life, possibly anyway, going cross country with his daughter who's on the precipice of starting high school. Uh, again, not trying to excuse anything, just trying to understand it. I mean, I think that you could absolutely make a, a very believable argument that he was hoping for seeing something more in Emma. Um, I I wonder if he would out and out, like, literally steal her away, or if he would maybe try to show her a, a, a possibility and hope that she would, you know, make the jump on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It, it is interesting. There's there, there's also, to, to, to mention something that we already touched on, this wonderful scene between Sam and, and Emma where they're having the conversation about how Emma's feeling so trapped and um, and Sam does have the line about non-person, and it, it it's interesting because in, in this episode, in other episodes, you know, there are often times where there'll be something that Sam does or something that Sam says or recognizes that that put it in the context of Sam. Whereas most of this episode is very much Sam being Sam, but not thinking about what that means. 
you know, like he's very focused kind of on the mission and, and also all the situations he's being put in, especially with all the antagonism that's happening from Alexandra, which leads to some very comical moments with the wedgies and the noogies and et cetera. Et cetera. Sure. And yeah. Seeing, you know, an adult Sam having to be put in this 13 year old shoes is very it's, it's very amusing without being overly comedic. But this is a moment in the episode that has a lot of gravity and a lot of weight, because when Sam mentions the, the about how you feel like a non person, it is without a doubt. Not only is it Sam identifying with Emma, but it's also Sam putting into words how he feels leaping through time. Hmm. You know, Sam feels very much like a non-person because he never gets to be himself. Uh And I think that he identifies that in Emma. And I think that it's interesting for Sam because as, 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 as progressive as Sam is often portrayed, even in the context of this episode, I think it's also a nice discovery for Sam. That it's very easy, like even as I sit here, it's easy for me to look at, you know, Emma's um, confines and, and say she needs to break out of that. It's easy for me to to sit here and, and the conversations that we've even had previous episodes and, 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 and think about, um, you know, equality and what that means to me and what I hope that means for others and what I hope for others. Uh, but for Sam to have the discovery of the identification of realizing that he knows how she feels in some small way, I think is is actually quite powerful. And and it was it it, it hit me. It stuck out to me for sure. Hmm. See, I did not. I didn't catch that in the scene of like of like Sam like finding a common ground with Emma, as you pointed out. What I found interesting about this scene is that. It's Sam having a conversation with someone and like accomplishing his mission through conversation. And because it's nature, it is television. It, it is a somewhat uh, action oriented show in a lot of ways, which we get to, you know, the last 15 minutes of the episode is that I feel like if we were to show Sam more realistically traveling through time and accomplishing his missions, a lot of times it would be these persuasive conversations mm. where he where he where he speaks rationally to get through to someone instead of the big action sequences does that sure. make, does, it, does that make sense yeah you know and it's, and it's again it's, it's also touching on the oh, go ahead I, I, like Uh-oh. i don't i don't disagree with that um but I do think that there are some episodes, and again, I, the, the, the comparisons that can be made between this episode and Thou Shalt Not, I, I feel like are strong enough that in Thou Shalt Not, yes, there's the scene at the end where, you know, the father punches Sam a couple of times, which helps kind of get the point across that he's still in love with his wife and, you know, that he has something worth fighting for or whatever. But that episode, again, as far as domestic drama goes, just feels very genuine and very honest. And this episode does as well until we get to those last few moments. Yes. Um, Yeah. Because I feel like his conversation works in a way. It's oh, it just does. in some ways it's the conversation with the wrong person. Yeah. I mean, like the, the next, because he, he's talking to her about going back to college and the next scene she's immediately talking to Hank about mm-hmm. going back to college. Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously that doesn't go well. And this is when she runs off. Now, this is also when we find out that Al says that they didn't dig deep enough in their records and that she didn't just disappear, that there were in 1993, there were women, uh, remains of a woman were found that ended up matching, um, Emma. 
mm-hmm. and so we know that 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 she died there at Devil's Backbone, um, which prompts them to you know to search for her. Um, you know, it's now dark out. This is when they have that confrontation with Billy. Uh, you know, they 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 they, they keep trying to find her there's this interesting moment with al where he's like you know center me on emma and, and like he gets into an argument i guess with ziggy like ziggy doesn't want to or, or go she, yeah like i like I, I don't care where she is yeah I don't, it, yeah it's an interesting thing um it is. but anyway so yeah they run into billy because the conversation that that happened off camera is that billy and emma had decided it's best for them to be in different places because of the conflict that's happening. And because, yeah, what eventually causes Emma to run off is uh, Hank and Billy almost get into a physical confrontation because Hank wants to fight over Billy putting his hand on Emma's knee. And then they have the subsequent argument about the feminine mystique where he actually takes the book and he flings it across the grounds. That's when she runs off. And then we have the scene of, of them running into Billy and it is like, yeah, Al shows up. But what I found interesting about the scene is like the the guilt that Al expresses over not having dug back yeah. far enough. Like they don't they don't beat you over the head with it. It's just that Al made up his own story about what happened to Emma. Ziggy never said that Emma was going to run off with Billy. That's an that's a that's a story that Al made up in his head. And then, yeah, in 1993, they find the remains. Interesting to note, 1993 was two years in the future at the time that yeah. this at the time this episode aired. Uh, yeah, and then they cut to then they cut to the big action sequence of the episode. So <clears throat> here's here, here's something that I want to say right off the bat. In the comparisons that I've made to Thou Shalt Not, that episode does a wonderful, wonderful job of maintaining the core conflict of the episode throughout the entirety. You know, even at the end of the episode, we don't necessarily, we get a sense of catharsis, but not a sense that everything's okay, but that it's going to be okay. And it's one of the most beautiful endings of an episode of its kind in the history of Quantum Leap. The more I think about that episode, the more I can easily hold it up as being a, you know, one of the the best of the best. Mm. This episode was well on its way to matching, if not exceeding that episode. And then it all completely fell apart. And to echo what was said earlier in the context of 1991 episodic television, I'm willing to give it begrudgingly a pass Watching it today and with the expectations that I have today and knowing how great the show can be when it's truly great, it ends up very nearly ruining the entire episode for me. Because now we have a manufactured piece of drama that is being tacked on to what felt very honest and genuine drama going before it. Because we don't know how she got there. Maybe she she just stumbled and fell as she was walking distraught through the woods. Who knows? But she's literally clinging to the side of a cliff. And it's it's dumb, Dennis. Like, what the fuck? No, I agree. So here, yes, that is dumb. And this is what pushes it over the top, like dumb, dumb. And this is the thing. Uh, uh, I, I watched this episode a few not even like beyond a few months ago before we even started like doing this podcast. And and this is the thing that really pushes it over the edge to me is that Billy is there too. And so they start and they start this thing and they write Billy off by him going, well, maybe we should get the park ranger. And Hank 
rightfully like shoots him this look like, all right, dummy, you go get the park ranger. I'm going to stay here and save my wife. (laughs) And it's the way that Billy is written off. Like up until this point, Billy has been a very grounded, real character. And to just like write him off in that way, it totally takes any dramatic tension over, you know, like maybe Emma did make the right choice. Maybe she didn't make the right choice so many years ago. And especially, we haven't really talked about this really in depth. It's like, you know, the scene where Hank does kind of admit that, yeah, he got Emma pregnant so she would leave him and go off to college. So you really do have to wonder, like, should they be together at all? Yeah. Kids aside. And then to write Billy off in that way, it just totally undercuts everything. And not only that, am I crazy or do we not a few moments later after Emma's been saved and everything see Alex chasing Beth around with a squirt gun on the campgrounds at the end of the episode? So it's clear that Billy and Alex are still there. Oh, I missed that. No. At the dance, yeah, at the dance, there's there's that moment where, like, kind of in the fore, the dance is in the background, yeah. and in the foreground, we see Alex running around with a squirt gun, and I think Beth is the one she's chasing, and then we zoom in closer on the dance, and people are getting drinks, and Moon River is playing, sure. and then we cut to, like, Sam, Hank, and, and, and Emma. And now, it could be my brain is Swiss cheese, and I'm getting things out of order, but I'm almost positive that that happens, but we don't see Billy, like you said. Yeah. Uh. So it's clear that... So Billy and Beth are still there, but now Billy's gone. It is cheesy. It's so dumb. It's like, yeah, it, 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 it's like, see, here's the thing. Billy, that's not a bad idea. You know, but but the way that it's portrayed is that Billy is a man, is not a man of action like Hank is. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like, I get it. I get what you're trying to do here, but it's a good, Billy has a good idea. Yeah. You know, it's like we should go get somebody should go get the park rangers. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the way that it's played, it's made to look it's made to make Billy look, you know, less than and cowardly and, you know, not the man of action and steely resolve that Hank is about to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they do this thing with the rope where, like, you know, Billy's tie or, or uh, Hank is tying the rope around himself and he's going to go down and for Sam is trying. Well, no. At first, it's at first it's Hank. Oh, is it? Oh, and okay. that's when Sam volunteers, and they throw the rope over the tree, and almost immediately they create more false drama by the idea that this rope is going to become frayed by the tree, which they they intercut every five seconds as Sam is being lowered, the rope rubbing up against the tree. Uh-huh. You see it coming from a mile away that this rope is eventually going to fray. It does fray. It never actually snaps. It's 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 such it's such false drama. It's terrible. There's more false drama with with Emma sliding further down and Sam not being able to grab her. Then they, then they commit one of the most unforgivable sins, which is they play it off as though Emma has fallen and the looks on everyone's faces are, are utter horror and shock. And then the next thing we see, Sam is holding her like everything's just fine. And they bring them up. Rope continues to fray. They get them to the top before it breaks. And then it gets even worse because now everything's okay because Hank has rescued her and he's kissing her forehead saying he loves her, he loves her so much. It's terrible. <laughs> That's a great recap, and I agree. <laughs> it, 
it's just. It, I will say. I mean, as as far as as far as just like action sequences go, it's a great sequence. I like it. I just hate that it's what resolves the episode. Yes, because what it does in contrasting it to "Thou Shalt Not" is it makes us think that th- that everything's okay. Whereas in Thou Shalt Not, you leave the episode knowing that everything's not okay, but it's going to be. Yeah. The end of this episode is meant to say everything's okay. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, that's bullshit. Yeah. Because, like, Al is there to tell, not show, of this, you know, Emma's going to go back to college, and Hank's going to retire, and they're going to move to Miami, and she's still teaching at the university. And yeah. And their song starts to play because Hank has paid the band to play or the DJ to play it. You know, see, and Hank, see, uh, I, I have a, a thing of contention like that. I kind of read that as like Hank didn't actually get the band to play that song. Sam did. Maybe I mis- huh. maybe I misinterpreted that. I don't think it's ever made exactly clear, but there's there's a look of surprise even on Hank's face. I always interpret it as. Sam taking the initiative to go tell the band to play it, but say that this is a special request from Hank. Yeah. I could be wrong. That, I don't know. No, that very well could be. That very well could be. Um, I do think you're right. I think it is a little unclear. Uh, but it, but the again, to undercut so much of what has gone before, what what we then see is Hank the big strong man lifting up his, you know, his, his, his broken and battered wife and carrying her off to the dance floor to have this moment of manufactured romance. And it's, it's, it's like, just because Al, like if Al did not tell us that she did go back to school and that she did become a teacher and all this sort of stuff, I would be left with the feeling That feminism got flushed down the toilet. That the book did get thrown off into the woods and didn't matter. That this was a victory for Hank, not for Emma. Yeah. You could totally see that. And I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I agree. It's just, it, I think that it upsets me more because, of, because so much goodness had come before. Mm-hmm. And some really, really nice moments, some beautifully well-acted moments. And, and, and again, this is not on the actors. This is purely on, 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 on the, the script. Yeah. I'm not even going to levy that at Paul Brown, because for all I know, Paul Brown wrote a really beautiful ending, and somewhere somewhere along the way, a producer or a director or somebody got a hold of him and been like, ah, it's never going to work for TV, we've got to do something else. Yeah. You know, I, 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 so I'm not even going to say bad on you, Paul Brown, because, again, the first three quarters of the episode are, are beautifully written. Mm. But yeah, the ending sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get to the ending. So uh, so Al gives Sam the you know the the, the recap of how everything's going to turn out, and, and Sam's like, okay, so why haven't I leaped? And Al says, well, Ziggy calls it the big sister theory, and this is where Alex shows up, and we've we've glossed over this, but through the entire episode, she has been physically tormenting him, noogies, purple nurples, pinning him down. And Sam has taken it because, as Al points out, like the first scene where Al shows up, he has to take it because even though he can physically overpower her, he has to pretend that he's 13 years old and helpless. And yeah. Yeah. And, and there is one really cute scene that I just want to interject with real quick that uh, 
when she's got her knee on his chest and it's when Sam is about ready to kind of like, you know, just flip her off and, 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 you know, take care of her basically. And when Al is like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And, uh, and she stands up and she's standing behind Al and she peers through Al in a really great hologram moment. Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of mock yeah. Sam even more. When you, when you least off. expect it, expect it. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, so, so sorry to interrupt. No, 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 that's fine. So yeah, so in this in this final scene, she sneaks up behind him, gives him a wedgie. He just happens to be standing by a well, and so he picks her up, dangles her upside down over the well and and basically says you have to th- promise to not torment your little brother anymore. And so there's interesting moments where where Sam starts speaking separately from the leapy, like making it clear, yeah. like, yeah, you have to stop. Yeah. You have to stop tormenting him. Uh, I, I love the fact, no more I, love, more no I love the fact that we keep getting the shot, like down the well, we don't see her dangling over the well. We just get the intercut shot of her, like down the well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then finally he lifts her up. Uh, she walks off. He's like, yeah, you're all right for a twerp. And the thing that undercuts it for me, it's like you would think Alex would have much more respect for her brother considering what she just saw her brother do. Yeah. How much more endearing would this last scene had been if she had come up and like they could have like they could have shot it, like they could have teased it, like she was going to do something nasty and instead of doing that, they just have this genuine Heart to heart moment, like she has been tormenting him the entire episode, and after having this traumatic thing happen of just her, of just them having this moment of sibling love. Yeah, how much better would that have been? It would have been fantastic because you're right. It it, it was like he just saved their mom's life, basically, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, the scene the scene could have played so much better if she was coming over to him and Sam thought that she was about ready to antagonize him again, but instead she she just she just said, "You know, you're all right." You know, gave him like a an affectionate punch in the arm or a hug or something. You're right. It didn't need it. And that and that's the thing. It's like the whole the, the entire end of the episode is an exercise in the unnecessary. Yeah. Huh. And I personally, I think that, you know, I, I remember in play analysis, we were taught never to talk in, in shoulds or how we would write a play differently or in something differently or whatever. But I'm going to break that rule because to me, a maybe a slightly more ambiguous ending or not fully resolved ending, a la Thou Shalt Not, would have been much more effective here. Um, and I think would have felt to me more like a win for Emma because again, the episode ends up feeling except for Al telling me that she's going to go back to school. It feels more like a win for Hank and it, and it just, it shouldn't. Yeah. It just really shouldn't. Yeah. I, I, uh, I agree. So yeah, to to touch back on like the last physical fight that me and a sibling had, (laughs) Oh uh, yeah, yeah I, and I, I had completely forgotten about this until watching the episode this morning. Uh, so yeah, one of my older siblings, yeah, she loved like physically picking fights with me and tormenting me. Uh, and the last time this happened, she was home. Uh, I can't remember if she was still in college or if this may have been like a year or two out of college. Um, I, I think this is, she may have still been in college. 
uh, yeah, she started picking a fight with me and I had just gotten big enough and I was probably like maybe 10 or 11 years old. Uh, I was probably about the same age that this, that this episode was on the air. Now that I think about it. Um, and I was able to physically get the better of her and we're like, we're having this fight in the living room. Mom and dad are there. Like they're watching this happen and they're amused by it. And I'm able to physically get the better of her. And I grabbed her by the hair and she's on the ground. And I just dragged her across the living room by her hair. And like, even as it was happening, it was like, I, I was kind of having fun getting the better of her. But on the other hand, there was a part of me that was like, I have to do this to show you to stop picking on me. Yeah. I dragged her across the living room by her hair and then she threw a huge fit and she wanted mom and dad to do something about it. And my mom and dad laughed her off. They was like, no, you started it. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the last time she picked a fight with me, at least physically. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. I mean, my sister and I, I think the last time that we ever got into it, that I can really recall, we were both pretty young, like five and six. Yeah, you know. And after that, the the, the physical stuff stopped, but the the mental and emotional continued. Oh, oh, god, yeah. Um, oh, I, I, I could go down a rabbit hole with that, but yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that um, the the exploration of the relationships in this episode for the first thirty five minutes or so really hit the mark, and it's unfortunate that they that they fall apart a little bit. Um, I think it's at this point yeah. that we would like to interject Betsy's comments. Yeah, before yeah, before we hit our wrap up, uh, let's talk with with Betsy about what about what she thought about this episode. Yeah. Hey there, Betsy. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going fantastic. How are you doing? I'm good. We say that like we just haven't been like getting ready for bed and setting up here. Yeah. In in, in the bedroom and, and pouring a little whiskey to. Watching the baby this. on the monitor. Watching the watching the baby on the monitor. Yeah. yeah. So we watched this together mm-hmm. this morning, and you had some thoughts, and you oftentimes have thoughts about different episodes that we watch together, and I mm-hmm. kind of deliver your your thoughts mm-hmm. by proxy because oftentimes you're watching Harrison, mm-hmm. but we felt given the the subject matter of this episode, we wanted to to squeeze you in okay. to this episode in a little different segment. So, yeah, initial thoughts? Um, you know, it it was a little bit across the board for me. I wasn't my least favorite episode by any means. Um, wasn't the the, the flattest characters, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few things that I'd probably change for, for modern times, but I think it was pretty insightful given... Yeah. The caliber of a lot of things on TV at that time, talking yeah. about women's lib. Yeah. So, yeah, Sam and I, we talked extensively about things that we would change, and particularly like in the last 15 minutes of the episode. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you would have changed for today's sensibilities? Well, let's see. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard. Going, starting from the beginning of the episode, uh, the characters were pretty one-sided i hated the father hated him from his um you know incredibly characteristic uh, quote um like 
checked out dad of the 60s and totally out of touch with both his kids and his wife and, you know, society as a whole, having not having having gone to college Mm -hmm. and like holding some disdain for people who have or want to. Oh, God, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, It made it really easy to hate, just straight up hate him. Yeah. Uh, There was not a lot of dimension at first, and I I get where they're going with that. Ditto for the kids. Mm -hmm. I couldn't stand those kids. I was, I mean, if I was that mother, I would be like, yeah, yeah, this has been a good run. Um, (laughs) Well, it's funny because, like. Pack it up. Yeah, well, like one comment that you made, uh, I think it was when they they come up on Billy the second time when, when the car is broken down on the side of the road. You made the comment, like, maybe this family needs to be broken up. Yeah, it occurred to me that, like, maybe they were wrong in their judgment of what needed to happen, according to Ziggy, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe he was put there to make sure that the family stays apart, and the mom goes on to college and does great things, and the kids find their way by having to rely on their dad and you know it that could have been one way you know yeah and the dad would have to become more enlightened and do a lot of the woman's work quote um of of raising his kids for the first time mm-hmm. um it, so are you like like emma should have just left the family entirely I mean, that's what she was planning on doing she did well no first. well no so to clarify they that's what they thought that she had done, but it turns out she had just fallen down oh, the cliffside. That's right, side. that's right, that's right. Yeah. And the whole thing of and the whole narrative of her leaving the family, that was something that Al had created because he was projecting his own family's past. Got you. On it. I, I so, guess I misinterpreted Yeah. So in the original history, no, she she never intended to leave them at all. Mm. She just fell down a cliff and they didn't that's find her remains. Do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Mm. I mean, I, I feel like the ways that they tried to dispatch her were all kind of either sad or desperate. Like, either she left her family out of contempt and, and you know, cowardice, basically choosing this this rich, successful, interesting mm-hmm. single dad and, and his beautiful daughter or whoever. Um, it was his daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, she looks a little close to his age as well. Oh, you know, there's yes, there was a thing. Like, there, there were a couple of moments, like the way the actor related, the way the actor playing Billy related mm-hmm. to the actor playing. Um, I, I can't recall the characters. Beth, I think, was her or was her character's name mm-hmm. right now. There was something. Yeah. Yeah. There was almost yeah. And I get they're supposed to be close, and she's... Oh, yeah, that's right. She's supposed to be Butchie's age. But Butchie is, like, 13, 14 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And she comes off as, like, 18, 19. She's a little older. You think older. she came across older? Yeah. I, I do. I do. It might have been the makeup choices. Maybe they were trying to make her look like a more sophisticated child somehow, and that, that translated it to, uh, you know, a woman. Mm-hmm. Um but whatever it was, I was confused momentarily. Another little sidebar thing, and I'll get back to uh, the ways I thought trying to tell the mom's story could I would change. Um, I would not have them visit the buffalo chimps on the side of the road. 
that, I mean, it, uh, yeah, these awful 60s road trips, it just sounds like hell to me. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that uh, just the uh, Peter would have a freaking field day. Um, the, the, like, you oh, can't oh, oh, do yeah. these things anymore. Like, even sure. to glorify it in any way. Yeah. Um, or even make it look like kitschy fun, you know? Sure. No, no awful. Change the name, like, I, all of it bad. Bad, bad, bad. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. I mean, obviously, yeah. I didn't but. get the Buffalo. Is this because they're from Buffalo, New York? Or is it because, like, I don't get why they chose buffalo chimps it, it was confusing and distracting to me and like all of the horrible souvenirs were horrible and i didn't get what you're supposed to do there and why butchie was excited to see them yeah okay maybe it's a generational thing maybe <laughs> um in the meantime so they try and get rid of mom uh and who who is you know finding herself um through this uh this book she's reading and etc um so either she left her family out of you know, fear, contempt, you know, cowardice, other whatever, man, yeah. her other man, um, and they never saw from her. Then that would have meant that they thought that she left without saying goodbye and never said anything to them for the rest of their lives until they found her, right? Mm-hmm. Awful. Yeah. So even though she had very legitimate reasons to feel frustrated in her marriage as a mom, as a human, yeah. um, she would be the one you know, to blame Mm-mm. for their situation. So that there's that. Yeah. Or, um, well, you know, it's interesting to point out because something that, that Sam and I didn't talk about is that we just get that she disappeared and the family never heard from her again, but we don't get a perspective and that it's not something that Al or Ziggy would have access to, but there's no perspective of, of what did the family think had happened? Right. Did they, I can only assume that they, they thought they, she left. Yeah. I mean, maybe they tried to have a search. I don't Yeah. Maybe they just assumed that she was a bored housewife. And yeah. Flew it off with some, yeah. Yeah. That's something that they, that they didn't really... Yeah. That they didn't really flesh out. Um, uh, we, we can't know, I suppose, but... Yeah. But then, you know, you know, you talk about, like, yeah, so either she ran off and left her family, or they... They dispatch her. It turns out she fell off a cliff. Like right. literally, literally fell, off cliff. fell off a cliff. Yeah, literally fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, as moms do, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I was confused about that, and maybe you can, because you've seen it more than once. Uh, were was she trying to kill herself? No, or like that is something, that's something that Sam and I talked about. Like they don't explain yeah. what happened, and so you can just assume that she was just upset because she just had the fight with Hank, mm-hmm. and she ran off, and she lost her footing, and didn't realize how how steep the area was there in Lame. the dark, and and she fell down the the edge of the cliff, and then it maybe got glossed over, maybe you missed it. Is that when Al shows up towards the end of the episode, he drops that in 1993. Mm-hmm. They did find remains. No, I saw Over that. that clip, yeah. But I, I thought, oh, she committed suicide. Oh, okay. Which is a stronger choice than to say, oh, God, she can't make up her mind about whether she should leave her family or not, so she 
kills herself by accident. Yeah. Well, I mean, stupidly going it, off on her own. You know. Well, the thing like, is, like, doesn't but, give her much agency. Or sure. Well, the thing is, like, they they didn't show the scene, but when they run into Billy towards the end of the episode, mm. he clarifies that she had come to see him and they had agreed that because of everything going on, it wasn't good for them to be staying at the same camp. Mm -hmm. So when they ran into Billy, Billy and his daughter were were leaving Mm -hmm. because they had made that decision. And then after that discussion, then Emma went off and in some way, shape or form, she fell off the cliff. Okay. Sorry. I was distracted by breakfast this morning. No. Um, (laughs) But then you had, as we were watching it, like you had issues just about the fact that, that, you know, like Sam was lowered down, like she yeah. literally had to be saved. And there was even like one moment like she didn't even like she wasn't even strong enough to like reach over and grab right. Sam's hand and like even like help with her own rescue. And you found that she was, even almost fucked that up. Yeah. Can I swear? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Fuck yes. Um, so first they, li- they literally throw her rope. Her husband throws her rope. Mm-hmm. She was given a moment to pull herself up. And rescue herself. Mm-hmm. That would have been cool. Um, and it would have been like a teamwork thing between her and her husband. Yeah. And maybe they were trying to make it a little more lay- layered by yeah. having the sun come down. Because obviously I mean, it had, they have yeah. to inc- include Sam somehow. Well, yeah, I think that's more like you got to have Sam making the heroic rescue because... Sure, because Sam. He's the hero, yeah. However, you could argue that he represents the younger generation coming to... You know, liberate like they—they they are literally like making a future possible for these frustrated, abused housewives, wives, and um, and so okay, so he—it's it's better that he saves her than than just the dad because the dad is helping um, in his way, yeah, with the frayed rope for sure, yeah. Um, what did you think is? Uh Sam and I went on at great length about this. The way that they write Billy off in that scene. Oh, uh, like, we need to go get the park ranger. Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, Sam and I talked like, like, yes, that's actually, uh, that's a legitimate thing of like, mm-hmm. okay, you got this covered. Somebody should actually probably go and yeah. get, quote, professional help. Right. But the way that it was presented it was done and like, Dumb oh, I'm, yeah, I'm just not strong enough. And like, we can't handle this. Let's go get someone else. Immediately, I need to lean back on, you know, some some outdoorsy man because I can't do anything. Here comes um, American Dad with his literally car full of supplies and um, and good old fashioned gumption to save his poor, desperate housewife. From accidentally falling off of a cliff. It would have been better if she had been like, I couldn't do it. I stopped myself at the last minute. I th- I would have liked for her to either choose to leave him or choose suicide. Make a fucking choice. And and be allowed to like play that out. Yeah. Um, without male intervention. Um, also, the fact that she didn't... She couldn't find it in herself to reach her hand over and either rescue herself or let or be rescued by her family. Um, also, little sister doing jack shit except just standing at the top of the cliff, like, getting in everyone's way. <sighs> yeah. What did, what did you think about the little sister? 
Oh, I think I called her Lady Dick. Yeah. Because <laughs> she was insufferable the whole time. And Mom could have done a better job of correcting that, but I think she was pretty checked out, too. Yeah, um, yeah she was awful. She was awful. And I, I guess... Now, <laughs> I don't think holding her over a well, threatening her life, is uh, an appropriate way of correcting that behavior. Mm-hmm. Because you're threatening violence with violence, whatever. But she's a bully. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot going on with her. Sure. None of it's good. Yeah. Sam and I had a discussion about that, and I'll just say that because it, it, it comes after this recorded segment. So as to not to repeat ourselves, I'll share that mm. thought with you after we start recording here. But mm-hmm. yeah, we had some thoughts about that scene. We didn't touch on the fact, like, how... Yeah. Yeah, and she's being how, awful, how like, right after was. they almost lost their mom. Like, yeah. She's just, and her mom is like this uh, liberated or starting to become liberated, strong, good person. I don't, I think they wrote her a little bit crappier than they needed to. She's just sure. a, a mean, mean girl. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she's standing at the, at the top of the cliff with her, um, her dad and brother doing all of the action. And meanwhile, mom is desperate, can't even make a decision between staying or going. And, and is so, you know, inept that she, in being indecisive, she also almost kills herself. Yeah. And then here's little sister who can't do anything. Can't run for the ranger either. Can't yeah. like nothing. Can't yeah. do anything. Just there. They could have just like she's 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 just a reminder of how dire the situation is of just like constantly cutting to her and like oh. and like crying and freaking out. Which may be a realistic thing. Sure. But like it, it, it seems like you're approaching this like like it's all like you know like this is all a metaphor like throwing in the mama rope. Yeah. Her having no literally no agency of like yeah, yeah. saving herself. And and um the women of that family seem pretty useless. I guess Billy's daughter, um, we're supposed to like her, but I don't know much about her mm-hmm. other than like, she seems like a good student and she is pretty. Yeah. I mean, other than that, like, uh, Sam and I had the debate over whether she was trying to be flirtatious with mm. Butchie, with, the, with mm-hmm. the kid that Sam leaped into. Sam seemed to think that she was trying to be a little bit flirtatious. I didn't see it. Like I could see that playing out, but, but yeah, I don't know. I can't remember exactly what she said to him, but it was basically like, "What grade are you You're going into? to do?" Yeah, and I, I got the impression that she was just um, trying to be polite, maybe trying to test his like, I don't know, level sure of socioeconomic background. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Based on her, her dad, like they probably come from upper class. Yeah, back east. And uh, sure. it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for her to be a bit of a snob. Yeah, that is true. You know, those I guess still I, elites. I, I guess maybe that's why I didn't catch, like, the, the flirtatious vibe mm-hmm. is because, yes, her and her dad were a little bit more upper class. Mm-hmm. And Hank and his family were decidedly more middle class. And, like, yeah. and, and like you know, they show... Butch's or Butchie's reflection like once and then they show the picture like he's kind of a dorky looking kid yeah. so I guess it's kind of hard to to think about to think like Beth would have been into Butchie yeah. and I guess maybe that's why I didn't see it as like a flirtatious thing but 
anyway. I think she was being polite and, and, you know, maybe trying to strike up a conversation about school. Yeah. And since he didn't even know what grade he's in. Like, sure. <laughs> that yeah. would have been a good moment for Al to jump in, but no. <laughs> but no, but no. Yeah. Yan Yan. Anya. Uh, well, great. Well, thank you for your input. Sure. On this. Thanks for including me. Oh, my pleasure. All right. We're going to throw this back to, back to Sam and I. So yeah, that's what she thought. <laughs> that's no, I you know I'm I'm really glad we're doing this. Uh, I, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I we have uh, at least I have no idea. You probably have some idea, um, but I have no idea what Betsy's going to say. Uh, so I, I look forward to listening to uh, to her comments. I'm sure that they're going to be uh, very well done. Um, so thank you, Betsy. Um, no, yeah, I, I like yeah because she you know like as you heard like she had some choice nuggets about it and I just like rather like have listeners hear her say them as opposed to like me just saying them for her oh hell yeah no I am all for that and I and I have no doubt and it's interesting because it really makes me want to you know go and, and screen the episode for, for Jessica um, uh, also in the interest of full disclosure uh, I watched this episode with my daughter uh, with Hattie in my arms and uh, Jess was, was sleeping because uh, we've we've gotten into this ritual where basically, um, you know, after the first feed of the morning, I take Hattie and I come downstairs and just kind of hang out with her for a couple hours while Jessica gets a little extra sleep because for the most part, you know, Jess is the one getting up in the middle of the night. I'm the one that's kind of, you know, changing a diaper here or there. But for the most part, I get to sleep, you know, most of the night, whereas Jessica does not. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, during the day, I try to change all the diapers. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's the least I could do. You know what I mean? Like at this point, it's it's funny because it, 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 like doing dishes and 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 you know taking up making sure that laundry's done, just trying to keep keep house as best I can. Which Jess and I usually kind of divide a lot of that stuff. 50 50 anyway you know what i mean like you know i do sure, i do laundry yeah. and dishes all the time but you know doing all of the laundry and all of the dishes is not something that that i normally do or whatever and so trying to keep up all those household chores um and you know change the diapers during the day like i said it feels like the least i can do um but anyway that said so jess hasn't seen the episode um my daughter has um she has no comments uh, but <laughs> but Dennis, what are your final comments about the episode? Uh, yeah, it, like, like I, I feel like I've laid them out before. It's one of those things. I feel like the first thirty-five minutes, it's a great episode. Like especially like the the scene between Sam and Emma, and even the scene between uh, between Hank and Sam, like where where Sam does the math mm-hmm. and he figures out, and he you know he figures out that. Alexander was uh, that Emma was pregnant with Alexander before they got married. Like those are just some, yeah, those are just some like fantastic scenes. And I, and I, and I liked where the episode was going, but then, yeah, it's always, yeah, that action sequence at the end that is just, just kind of takes the piss out of everything. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I don't, I, I don't have too much to add to that. Um, but I think you, you hit it. I mean, the scenes, there, the three big standout scenes are the two that you mentioned, and then the one between Hank and Emma, where Hank ends up throwing the book. I think that those are very well done, um, and I think that uh, all the relationships are really great. And, and it's just, it's just the ending. You know, the ending takes the wind out of the sails of an otherwise really, really good episode. Um, I, I, I think that. If I'm, you know, if I'm plotting someone's rewatch of Quantum Leap and they don't want to watch every single episode, this one would probably end up on the bubble 
just because of its ending, which is too bad because I feel like those first 35 minutes are, are really great quantum leap, um, especially in terms of being the domestic drama, which I feel like, you know, when, when we get those episodes, I think the most recent one that comes to mind is great Spontini. Um, you know, they, they either feel a little boring um, or they end up being really great, like Thou Shalt Not. And, and so it's unfortunate that this one kind of ends up being a bubble episode, if you will, if I'm trying to give somebody the condensed version of Quantum Leap rewatch. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, worth noting real quick, we're halfway through the third season, which puts us almost to the halfway point in general. So we have all... Of the series, We are, we yeah. are coming very close to have covering, having covered half of the episodes, um, which is pretty cool. Um... You know the social We're media up stuff. There. Everybody, keep it up. Yeah, we love hearing from you. Yeah, speak. Yeah, speaking of uh, Rosen, she did comment because we put a thing out on Facebook. Uh, she thought like she she really enjoyed this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, she pointed. I'm, I'm quoting here: the way he saves his mother, whom we all thought had ran off with the pretty boy. It's empowering to women, which. Uh, I, I don't know. You don't know this because you haven't heard Betsy's comments. Betsy actually thought the exact op- opposite, mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, which the listeners have heard by this point. Um, but yeah, she's like uh, just Rosen just comment that she really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, which is which is great. You know, I mean, that's the thing is it's like I I, I think that anytime we do this and, and it's like you mentioned earlier that we love having different points of view on the episode we can. It would be wonderful to have had a woman on the episode for the length of the you know this whole episode. But you know, at the end of the day, it's just it's just Sam and Dennis's opinion. You know, and and I think that everyone's opinion is extremely valid in the case of something like this. And 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 I'm just thankful that we're getting uh, perspectives from people that are watching the show for the first time who are are watching it. You know for the 50th time or, or whatnot, uh, I, I feel very lucky to have kind of, you know, to be a part of that, that community and be in the position that we're in right now doing the podcast. So, um, yeah, you know, tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like, even if it happens to be us. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, the, the one woman on Twitter made it clear that she didn't like us a few months ago over that one, that one joke that I posted. It's a Tide ad, man. <laughs> Oh, well. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, uh, so our leap uh, out—it's uh, worth noting—is into another mother, which I find yeah. interesting because uh, the next episode is actually going to be eight and a half months. So Sam is indeed a woman, uh, a pregnant woman, um, and uh, so on the verge of being a mother. Uh, so it was an interesting little decision to have that be the leap out episode. Um, and again, the hiatus is about to occur. Uh, there will be a letter writing campaign. The show will indeed be saved. Thank goodness for us all. We'll talk a little bit more about that on the next episode. I think it'll be worth doing. Um, yeah. But uh, in the meantime, I don't know. Are you ready to leap out of here? I am ready to, to leap out of here. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we will we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed what you've heard or have any questions or comments, don't be shy. Reach out to us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Fates Wide Wheel. And remember to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Until next time.